Okay, thank you so much for joining us on today's session of From the Field Farm Chat with Idaho Wheat. We are joined today by Vince Peterson, who is the president of U.S. Wheat Associates, and he is going to be talking about some um, market projections. Uh, he has a crystal ball that I'm sure he's looked into for this conversation, and we are we would love to have your questions. So you can either use that reaction button at the bottom of the screen to raise your hand. You can type your question into the chat or you can just unmute your microphone and we will see that and make sure that you get your question asked. Um, we will also be recording this episode and posting it to our YouTube channel and our podcast platforms so you can find those if you search the handle idaho wheat and you can share it with friends neighbors um anyone who might be interested in hearing this information later so vince without further ado i'm going to let you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit and then let's talk about u.s wheat and population growth and the next 25 years. And I'm looking forward to being there through all of that, by the way, Brittany. Ah. <laughs> so very, very, very glad to do it. And thank you for the invitation to be on with you this morning. So for this afternoon. So let me just uh, start out a very brief introduction that Brittany asked. I'm, I'm Vince Peterson, the president of U.S. Wheat, and I've had the, the pleasure to have had this job uh, since 2016, I guess. So it's going on seven years. Uh, but I've had uh, I had about uh, 32 years prior to that with U.S. Wheat. I've been with them since 1985. I was in two overseas offices in the Middle East and uh, and in Europe. I spent uh, the split time in Washington D.C. and a couple of different jobs. And since uh, since Alan Tracy retired, I had the opportunity. The board was very kind to me and let me take take this job for the, the remainder of my time here. I really appreciate it. It's been a great it's a great company. And for those of you that aren't familiar with it where we are the we are the stepchild of the wheat commissions we were formed by the wheat commissions back in the late 1950s a couple of different organizations western wheat associates for those in idaho and and great plains wheat for those back in the in the midwest and and the result of that today is we still have about 80 employees globally two u.s wheat offices in the united states you may be familiar with the office in portland oregon that's in the wheat marketing center and then we have 14 offices overseas and uh, an office like uh, Tokyo, Japan has been there in excess of 65 years. And uh, we are your voice. We producers voice overseas. We represent your interests. Uh, we play a really special role, I think, both on the marketing side and the technical side of that, that industry. And our goal is to, uh, to make both sides of that equation profitable. We want our, we want our producers to be profitable by the, the magnification that exports provides to the marketplace. But also we try to do that by helping our customers to be profitable, because if we can do that with our product, they're going to come back to us uh, time after time. So that's the broad outline. I won't, uh, there were questions about U.S. Wheat, glad to, to visit about that. Uh, crystal ball, yeah, I, I always try to consult that very, very frequently, and that it, sometimes it's foggy, and most of the time it's foggy, frankly. But when I was thinking a little bit about what I want to speak about, I think maybe uh, the, the, the topic or the, the day caught me on a bad moment when I was first thinking about that. And there were a couple of things that I had some, some sort of pet peeves about. And I wanted to sort of maybe 
as I was thinking about things I wanted to address, there are about three of those things that came to my mind that I wanted to kind of throw on the table and just spend a couple of minutes talking about. And maybe they're pet peeves, maybe they're what I call misconceptions or misperceptions about things in the market, things that have a have an element of truth in, in the statement, but then no one takes it a step farther to talk much more about it. So first one I'm gonna, I'm, I'll, I'll throw out on the table is, uh, people will say US wheat exports are losing global market share. We're losing our place in the world marketplace. And that statement in itself is, is true. And if you look back to just the last 20 years, you go back to the year 2000, uh, US wheat had about a 30% global share of world trade. 10 years later until 2010, that was down to about 20%. Uh, today or 2020, that was down to about, uh, I'm sorry, 20% in, in 2010, about 10% uh, three years ago. And if we forecasted with a crystal ball forward, that's probably going to drop further down to 7 or 8% of world trade by the time we get out to 2050, you know, 25 plus years from now. So on, on the surface, yes, that's true, but, the, but you have to look a little deeper into, you know, first of all, what, what does that mean? Is that an impact on us? Is that something we should be concerned about or is market, global market share an element of, of, of even our targets? So when you think about it, the pie has changed tremendously over these 25 years. Uh, in, in 2000, total world trade was about 100 million tons. It increased up to 150 million tons by 2010. It's over 200 million tons today, and in the year 2050, it's probably going to be 325 million tons or thereabouts someplace. So, so that pie is what's changing our market share. It's not the fact that we're working any less diligently or have any less close relationship with customers, but in, but in fact, the world trade is getting so big and is going to grow so much more that unless we do something on the production side, that the measure just simply by world market share continues to be where it is. So we're going to pick that apart just a little bit more and 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 some some other ways to see kind of where we fit into the to the world and what the opportunities are out there. So the sort of the second misconception or maybe perhaps misperception about things, and you say, yeah, Vince, that's fine. You tell me we've lost market share. You sort of explain you know, why that is. But in fact, we have lost volume in export sales over those same years. And that, that sentence by itself is, is also true. We probably have lost from 2020, we exported about 26 million tons of wheat. We hit about 21 million tons last year. So we've lost four to 5 million tons of U.S. wheat export sales over the last 22, 23 years out of, out of the total volume. So there's some truth, truth to that. But we sort of have to put that in then context of of what are we producing because we export a function of what we produce every year. And unfortunately with what's happened in the last three years in terms of drought, and we were hoping 2024 might be a little bit of a recovery, but I'm not sure it'll be a recovery in any big way. But if we look back to the first 10 years of that period, 20, 2000 to 2010, US produced on average 57 million tons of wheat in our, in our wheat crop every year. Uh, that dropped down slightly 55 to 56 million tons in the year 2010 to 2020. But in the last three years, that's down at just 45 million tons. So we're about 12 million tons of production below where we were just 10 and 20 years ago. Well, that's, that's a big impact. When you think about the math, that math is almost unsustainable for us. If you think about our production at 45 million tons, we consume in the United States for all domestic purposes about 30 million tons. 
that leaves 15, pretty simple subtraction. Well, we're exporting 2021, 20, 22 million tons with only a production surplus of 15. That means that's got to come from somewhere else. We're going to be reducing stocks, which we are uh, in doing that, bringing the ending stocks down, tightening the stocks to use ratio. But also we're living a little bit off of uh, Canadian wheat that comes in uh, through the north. We have a pretty robust import of Canadian wheat that millers uh, bring in. And that wheat is traded as much as 20 to 30 dollars a ton discount to U.S. spring wheat in many cases. So there's a little bit of a balance going on there. But I would have to say that in the end, um, we recognize that we have a production problem in wheat. Yeah, we have a weather problem the last three years. But uh, this is almost a whole other discussion by itself. Clearly, we have a lot of crop competitive issues. Uh, growers have the ability to produce all sorts of different crops now that they perhaps didn't have 20 and 25 years ago. And that puts us in a different environment. But nevertheless, we're, we're exporting a very robust percentage of the wheat we're still producing. We're over 50% of our production, but, but that really is unsustainable without trying to get our production back at least up into the mid-50s, if not you know, targeting upper 50s in terms of millions and tons of production. So I think that's a goal for my own, I think. The last one that's been kind of a pet peeve for me, and I think Steve Mercer would say the same, is a lot of times you'll read that now... The U.S. is the residual supplier of wheat or, or the supplier of last resort. And the question I have is, is first of all, is, is that even true? And while I would say the other two were true on their face, and we lost world market share, our volume is down a little bit over the last 20 years, the fact that we are a residual supplier, I think, is, is completely not true. Um, U.S. exporters have to register their export sales weekly with, with USDA, and there's USDA report that comes out every Thursday with the outstanding sales report. If you look at that, uh, I think the last report was as of October the 12th, so we're a, you know, a couple of weeks behind where we are today. But that's roughly one-third of the way through the marketing year, from June 1 to, to uh, the end of September. And in one third of the way through the marketing year, we have total outstanding sales on the books right now of 10.7 million tons. That means within the first three or four months of the year, we're already almost at the 50% mark at what we expect to sell for the entire year. Now, there's plenty of wheat available in the marketplace. Canada's got wheat, Australia's got wheat, Europe, Russia, everybody's got wheat right now, and everybody's wheat is much cheaper than ours. So anyone that is buying our wheat that has paid premium prices to buy that first 11 million tons is not because it's the choice of last resort. I would say, quite frankly, for those that have bought it, for those that find it fits the place in their mills, in their bakeries, it provides consistency and reliability of supply, provides profitability in all of those areas that we are, in fact, their first choice of supply. That may not be true for Egypt. That may not be true for uh, for a lot of other company, countries that just buy purely on price and not on quality. But I think for those that are buying our wheat today, they are buying it for very specific purposes. They've indicated a willingness to pay a premium to, to do that. And over the last uh, 18 months, that's all that almost excludes the last three or four months, clearly prices have been down and we're starting to get a little bit more in balance. But over the last 18 months, we've had a situation where it's probably our soft wheat prices have been as much as $20 over European or Australian prices. Uh, spring wheat has been as much as $30 through most of the year over Canadian equivalent spring wheat prices. And our hard red winter wheat, those poor guys in the Midwest with the short crops three years in a row, have been as much as $100 a ton over Russian and black sea wheat. So the fact that we are selling 20, 21, 22 million tons of wheat every year at those kind of premiums, I think is a testament to the fact that we're not 
a supplier of last resort, but in fact, a supplier of probably first resort for many of those places. So now to look a little bit into the, to the future, um, we, you know, part of our responsibility is that this is a long-term job we're in. Uh, market development is something that we develop uh, relationships with businesses, customers that span, span decades. Uh, when we talk about having an office in Japan, we've been there for 65 years and, you know, God willing, we'll be there for another 65 years going forward. But we have to kind of to look at where we're at and uh, assuming that we can conquer the production side of things to get our production moving back higher. You know, what is the opportunity out there for us looking forward? So I wanted to kind of take a quick step back and then we'll look at look at that going forward. There's been a big change in our business in the last 20 or 25 years, and that is in the direction that our wheat exports are going in a competitive fashion. In the year 2000, about 45% of U.S. wheat exports went broadly into the European, uh, Middle East, African hemisphere, 45% uh, of our business. 55% of that business was going at the time to Latin America and the Asian Pacific Rim. Now we fast forward till, till this last year, we pick apart our exports. Last year, only 15% of our exports went to that Europe, Africa, Middle East region. That, that certainly tells you all you need to know about Russian, Ukraine, even with the war going on, there's still more wheat coming out of the Black Sea than, than before the war. Uh, that, that business is so competitive, the freight is expensive to, to get it over there. And frankly, we're just not in a place where we're gonna compete with a short crop in the United States in a market like Egypt or uh, East Africa or many places in the Middle East. But we are competing well in Latin America and Asia. 85% of US wheat exports now are going to Latin America and broadly to, uh, to the Asian Pacific. So when, when we look at what's just 25 uh, years down the road, we're gonna say, okay, with that in mind, is that gonna change? And I think, no, that's not gonna change. I think we're gonna have our competitive battle in, in, in Europe and in Black Sea is gonna continue. They're gonna to continue to be big wheat exporters. So our, our focus is going to continue to be more and more in, in our hemisphere, north-south trade to Latin America, and then the easy access we have to the Pacific, where right now we really only have severe competition from Canada and Australia for the higher quality and product markets there. But if we look at the total going forward, we're gonna have a population growth in the world that's gonna go from about the 8 billion or so people we have today up to, you know, get different estimates, but somewhere between nine and a half and 10 billion people by the year 2050. And I just said nine, nine and three quarter billion is somewhere probably a UN average somewhere. Now out of that 1.75 billion people addition, about 1 billion of that's gonna be in Africa. It's a huge growth that's, that's gonna take place in Africa. There's no question about that that's gonna be big. But in addition to that, there's gonna be about 600 million additional people in Asia. And that's not necessarily China at all because China is actually probably on a recessionary trend line for population pyramid. It's going to be in South Asia, Southeast Asia, most of those countries. And then Latin America also is going to grow by about 100 million people. So there's 700 million additional inhabitants and consumers that are going to be in this immediate uh, path of ours, our marketing path, both north, south and east, west uh, to, to the Pacific. So that's going to push wheat consumption up dramatically. Uh, we're consuming globally somewhere around 780 million tons of wheat right now, and we're and we're producing just about the same amount. They're very, they're in very good, very good balance. 
that's going to grow to exceed a billion tons of world consumption in wheat by the time we get to that 9.75 billion people 25 years from now. So there's going to be another 220 or 30 million tons of uh, consumption growth going in that period of time. Global trade is going to increase almost to match that. And we'll talk a little bit about, about why that is. Today, we're trading a little over 200 million tons between countries. That's the deficit has to be exported from one country to another to fill in the consumption needs. That is going to be well over 300 million tons uh, 25 years from now. It's going, to, it's going to grow by at least 50%. So how do we, how do we get to those, some of those kind of analyses? Um, you probably are familiar with the market side of things, looking at prices and supply demand things, something we call the stocks to use ratio, where we simply compare stocks at the end of a season to the total annual usage of that commodity and come up with a ratio. It's 25%, it's 12%, it's 30%. But that's a barometer of the tightness of supplies and its impact on prices. Uh, you can take that in a little bit different way. And I, I've done some analysis looking at imports to usage ratios. In other words, of the total amount that's produced in the world, the talent that's traded in the world, how much of total world consumption has to be imported? And it's pretty interesting. When you look at where the growth in the population is coming, you take that tropical and subtropical band around the globe, and it's coming in, it's coming across Africa, it's coming across the central part of South, South Asia, the places where they really don't grow wheat. So the so the ratio, when you look at those things, the demand for imports is going to be in places where they don't have the greatest proclivity to produce wheat. So uh, if you just look at the path over about the last 20 years, in, in the year 2000, what we would call the import to use ratio is about 17%. In other words, the world globally had to import or had to trade about 17% of what was consumed in order, in order to fill all the, all the mills, all the bakeries, and all the consumers' needs around the globe. Today, that's 27%. So we've increased that from 17 to 20% that must be traded. That's only going to get higher as we produce those population growths in the center part of the globe. And it's probably going to push us up at least into the 32, 33% import demand range, import ratio, if we can use that, that term out there. That means that with a billion tons of consumption, we're going to be importing we, the world, will be importing somewhere around 320, 325 million tons. We're on that path, we're on the trajectory. The history shows us it's, it's, uh, it's, it's probably solid and that probably is obtainable. So, so when we look at that going forward, that's a tremendous opportunity just in total numbers for, for the U.S. As, a, as an exporter and the effect that we can grow our exports in terms of gr greater production going forward, whether that's profitability or yield gains or all those kind of things we need to do. There's two big, big places where we've got some potential. So first, when we look at Latin America, that one, that first part of our target market, um, population is again going to grow about 100 million people. That's going to push consumption up by about 10 million tons in Latin America. Now, Latin America does produce some wheat, so there's some production capability in Brazil. There's some in Argentina, Paraguay, Uruguay, some of those areas, not much in the other side. But probably net out of that, that will increase imports by about 7 million tons in Latin America for today. The Latin American market in, in normal marketplaces is a U.S., Canadian, uh, uh, Argentine market competition down there. We have 
places now where the Russian wheat is coming all the way across. But as that African market grows, I think the Russian wheat will be far less inclined to come over into our hemisphere. We'll stay more locally on their side. So that 7 million tons of additional potential export business is ours there to argue about with the Canadians and the Argentines. So that's, that's a very good one for us, I think, on, on that side of it. On the other side, in the, the Asian Pacific, I think we look primarily at South Asia and Southeast Asia as the growth market. Um, Japan, Korea, Taiwan are, are fairly mature markets, particularly Japan. Japan actually has a little bit of a declining production, but the others are, are, are mature and established markets in North Asia. China is a market that's probably um, uh, contracting in terms of population. They've got a population pyramid that's completely upside down and somewhat irreversible for them. So that probably is going to be a continue to be a big market, but probably not grow a lot. But the South Asian market, where you've got 600 million people, more or less in that region that are going to add to that growth, is going to, and even though they're, they consume wheat at a smaller rate than perhaps some other countries do, is going to produce uh, another 10 million tons of, of consumption demand in South Asia. And there they produce almost no wheat. In South Asia, we're not including India or Pakistan or China. It's all the rest of the countries. They produce nothing. So almost all of that 10 million tons of consumption will go right into imports. So between the two markets, South Asia and and uh, the Asian Pacific markets, where right now we're doing 80 85% of U.S. wheat export business, we have uh, another potential 17 million tons that could come to the marketplace uh, over the next 25 years. And I think that's a tremendous opportunity for U.S. wheat. Of course, the bottom line is that we've got to have uh, wheat production to, to match that. If we continue to produce 45 million tons of wheat, we have, no, we have no room to move. We have no room to increase exports if we're not producing it. So that is a challenge amongst ourselves. And clearly at, uh, with plant breeders and at universities and uh, with lots, lots of technologies coming to the marketplace, those are going to be challenges we've got to look forward to and, and embrace because I think we've got great potential for us out there going forward and we just have to kind of rise to the challenge and meet it with the, with the production growth. So I think I've almost hit my 25 minutes, Brittany and, and Ryan. Uh, maybe I'll take a breath there and certainly invite any uh, questions, discussions. I'm glad to go other directions. We can talk about other things going in the market if, if uh, people are, are interested in going other directions. Well, Corey, do you have a question? You're, you're muted. I, yeah, I'm, I'm getting that part figured out. I've always got questions. More just for educational purposes for farmers, kind of explain how U.S. wheat is helping to promote our sales or exports at kind of the regional offices, the employees we have everywhere. And then, yeah. then just because I've seen a lot of pushback even from farmers lately and that maybe times have been too good. We don't need the farm bill anymore. Mm. Kind of explain how we're funded at U.S. Wheat and, right. and how it's a combination of, of several important things. All right. Great, great questions, Corey. Well, let me let me take that second part of that first. So the funding is, is, is a critical issue without without solid funding beneath the organization. Of course, we don't don't we don't go anywhere. So on the on the, on the very positive side of that we've got 17 state commission members 16 others including including Idaho and I have to say in my uh, my time with the organization working with our board we've had nothing but 
positive support from the board, from the growers. We've had, I mean, people devoting like, like you do and Cliff and others that will be take those challenges, devote their time and their resources and energies to, to helping us do that mission. And, and they've been very generous with the funding from the state side, even when times have been tough and production's down and prices haven't been so good. But we do take that money and that's about a little over $6 million in producer money. We put that on the table with USDA and do an industry sharing financing. And that does come through the farm bill. Two programs, one's called the foreign market development, the other market access program. And, and they, they together provide us with about uh, $12 million of resources um, that we use overseas to support overseas programs. Um, in the middle of the trade wars with China and during the Trump administration, there was a third program that came on called ATP, Agricultural Trade Promotion Program, that had a sunset thing. It expires at the end of 2020 or September 2024. That was a big program that really helped us bridge the fact that those other farm bill programs had not been increased since about the year 2004, some, somewhere in there. So there's... Um, we're very actively, we and National Association of Wheat Growers have been helpful in doing that, as well as uh, lobbying coalitions we're part of in lobbying the new farm bill for uh, doubling of the FMD and MAP programs. I say those have been stagnant for more than 20 years, and you can imagine what inflation has done to, to that. But in addition to that, Secretary of Agriculture just yesterday announced a new, uh, let's, let's call it a temporary program, similar to ATP. We don't know the the, uh, the exact rules and regulations yet, but it will provide another apparently $1.2 billion for ag market development over about the next five year period that should be a bridge, hopefully to a new farm bill and, far and permanent funding that goes on from there. So that's a lot of uh, a long explanation, but with all of those resources, we support uh, two offices in the United States, an office in Portland, Oregon, and one in, in the headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, and then 14 overseas offices. And in those offices, um, those of you had a chance to visit them, we, we employ uh, seven overseas expat U.S. citizens right now spread around around the world. And in the Asian theater, we've got uh, Joe Soares out in Singapore and Joe Bippert down in, uh, in Manila. The other offices in Asia, Japan, Taiwan, Korea, oh, I take that back, Jeff, Jeff, uh, uh, in, uh, and Hong Kong is, is also there, three and three in Asia, but all the rest are supported by local national hires that we make. And these, these people are unbelievable employees. They are, in some cases, former uh, grain traders. We have one in, in Taiwan that came from that area, one in Korea, and one in Japan. All were former grain traders with uh, Mitsui and Marabini. Um, they're directing our offices. They know the markets. They know the people. They know the millers. And then we also employ technical staff. Uh, we've got staff of uh, bakery technologists, noodle technologists. We've got uh, three flour milling technologists on staff around the world. And we share these resources. Uh, they have some regional responsibilities, but we share them globally. So we take some of our flour milling people. We have two uh, two in, based out of our office in Casablanca, Morocco, but they do kind of travel the world. And we've had them out in South Asia. We have them in Latin America. We have them in a number of places, all adding to our to our technical resources. So the bottom line is we are working with uh, uh, primarily now private businesses, 
uh, and these can be from small family companies to great big large conglomerate uh, you know, companies the sizes of Cargill's and ADM's that are operating uh, flour milling businesses around the world. We work with them to introduce the products, to, uh, to get them familiar with the products. We have uh, products where we do risk management practices and programs for them. We do technical training for them. We cooperate with schools. We do our own programs. It's just a myriad of activities that we're doing with a primary purpose to make them familiar with our products, help them to access them, and then hopefully demonstrate that it makes their it makes the best uh, end product use for them. It's it's economical. It provides value. It provides profitability for them in their systems. So these are long term relationships. Um, in, in most of these cases, well, sometimes you hear USDA talk about, well, have you opened a new market lately, or have you? Uh, you know, there's some emerging markets we should be looking at. And my my response to that is, yeah, there may be one out there, but frankly, if there's a market out there that's emerging somewhere that we're not involved with, shame on us, because that's our job is to know where these markets are, to know where the the businesses are growing, know where they're they're moving into, and to try to be there when that stuff happens. So uh, we've got very good long-term contacts with the people. We've got open door policy generally with their with their mills. They will share private information with us because they know we will keep it confidential and use it for their benefit only. And it's just a great uh, a great direct pathway from the U.S. wheat farmer to the overseas customer. It's that that tie back. The U.S. wheat produced that I think the overseas customer appreciates so much. Cody, you had your microphone unmuted for a second. Did you have a question for Vince? No. Okay. So, Vince, you mentioned that all of these other places have wheat. Russia. And the, the slash the Black Sea is exporting more this year than they did before the invasion of Ukraine. Um, Australia has had a bumper crop for the past three years or so, um, and all of that all of that wheat is a cheaper price point than U.S. wheat. So, how do you compete globally with less expensive wheat? to promote U.S. wheat? Yeah. Well, we spent a lot of time on the on the, the technical value side of, of, that, of that discussion. Um, you just rattled off a whole bunch of uh, origins, uh, some of which are good. I mean, we never demean our competition because we have to assess them fairly. But so you've got a competition in Canada, which is well-developed and generally in Australia, uh, each of them can have their own problems. But when it comes to a system of consistent, reliable supply. And that's a very big thing these days, you know, a sustainable, reliable supply choice, supply chain. There's almost nothing that, uh, that isn't the envy of the world with regards to the U.S. system. Uh, so we spent a great deal of time focusing on that. And I think that that is an, uh, probably an intrinsic value that, that's maybe a non-intrinsic value that gets put into the value of the wheat because they know when they're going to buy stuff from the United States, there's not going to be a Russian tax imposing it. There's not going to be a most likely a labor strike like we might have in Canada or, uh, or some other problem in Argentina with the tax imposed. They know when they buy it from us, they can buy it reliably. 
the suppliers are going to deliver it on time and within specification. And uh, so that's a big element of it for us. The other thing we've got is, you know, assurance through the system with, frankly, with our grading and inspection system, a federal system that is much more reliable, transparent than many others that are using private laboratories and those kind of things. And then, uh, and we don't win every single battle in these things, but when you get into the, to the mills and the bakeries and the laboratories, you know, in the serial chemistry process, you can demonstrate, you know, better absorptions, better low volumes, better cookie cracker responses, um, better uh, unit production uh, efficiencies. There's a lot of things we can do to demonstrate value that, that aren't just reflected in the price of the wheat. Uh, that doesn't win every battle. And when you have a hard red winter wheat that's $100 a ton more expensive, no, we're not, we're not going to win all of those. But we win a lot of them, and we win a lot of them on, particularly on, uh, I think it's probably good news for Idaho in particular, because on the spring wheat, soft white wheats, those things in particular, we have just unique properties that are almost unparalleled. Uh, you know, Canada might disagree with me on that, but, but uh, our spring wheat is, is uh, superior to theirs, and most of the customers that are buying ours buy it because, that it, because it is and it does a job better for them. So it's a long way around, uh, Brittany, and we try a lot of different angles and uh, we hopefully we're gonna win, uh, you know, more than we lose on trying to promote it in that way. Now there's an economic reality that at a certain point, someone will throw their hands up and say, I, you know, $100, I can't, I can't do. But we found many cases that $30 and $50 is doable. And we've seen that almost all year, all last year and the first half of this year. And actually right now we're getting to the point where we're starting to get a little bit more competitive. I have to tell wheat farmers, prices have come down in, 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 in recent times. They're a little bit more in balance. And frankly, we just heard from Mexico uh, yesterday that in making the calculations that all this cheap Russian, Eastern European wheat that had been flooding in there over the last year is now actually penciling out uh, at, at, at par, if not a little bit worse than hard red winter we moved into Mexico. So we've almost come a little bit back to the beginning. If we just uh, can keep that relationship up, I think we'll be okay for this year. I, I kind of want to add something and I don't even think I've told you guys this because I've missed a couple of US wheat meetings in busy farming since then, but Brittany and, I, <laughs> yeah, Brittany and I had the opportunity to go to Taiwan and Singapore last year and with the governor in tow we we got to meet with the the head of Wilmar which is one well, of the you guys can correct me if I'm wrong one of the biggest milling companies in the entire world probably is the biggest probably and and, and there was a lot of tension over Chinese relations and yeah. Taiwan and everything and, and the comment that this president made really stuck with me and spoke volumes he said that U.S. Wheat is the one American organization that is welcomed with open arms no matter where in the world they go. And I, I think that really says a lot about what everybody is doing and, and how, how good of a job they're doing to, to kind of transcend political and yeah. governmental problems. It's, it's really quite, quite impressive. Well, thank you for relating that, Corey. In fact, I think that's something we, we, we have, to, have to strive for. All of us, every employee in the U.S. wheat's got a political persuasion. One, you know, of some 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 sort. Where everybody's different. We're we're pretty diverse and equitable in our organization. But, but when you get when you get into a professional setting, we have to be able to work with 
the Taiwanese and the and the Chinese nationalists. We've got to be able to work with uh, the Israelis and the Jordanians and the Iraqis and you know every slice of the globe. We have to have workable relationship with and have to have a path to get our wheat there. Um, so it's hard sometimes to, to put uh, put national feelings aside or political feelings aside and work around those. And some of them test your your uh, will just a little bit. For example, we haven't had it come up recently, but in not so long distant past, we've had places where we've done considerable business with Iran. While Iran was involved in some other things, we wish they hadn't been involved in. And those are difficult, difficult environments to to work through and sort of uh, put it in perspective. But anyway, I think we've come out pretty well in most cases and glad we have that open door policy. I'm glad to hear it from the guy at Wilmer is, is quite a testament, I think. Well, we have come upon our 30 minute mark with the events. Right. If anybody else has any last questions, now's your chance. Um, unmute your microphone or raise your hand. But we wanted to thank Vince so much for not just joining us today for our From the Field, but for all of the work that U.S. Wheat does um, on behalf of wheat growers across the country to get wheat around the world. So thank you so much for all of those efforts. We, we have had the opportunity this year in Idaho to host four or five trade teams from around the world. And it's those are such a, a wonderful experience to meet the people who are purchasing wheat from the Pacific Northwest or from the United States and just build those relationships and um, kind of show them around what what a, a farm looks like and what what all of you farmers do every day. So we appreciate those opportunities a lot, Vince. Well, Rob, I'll just interject. Sorry. To, oh, no. That's really important. And Brittany, you've done a great job personally stepping into this job and uh, you, you didn't let your passport uh, rest very much in this first year. I think you, you've been there, but making those contacts, you go out and you see them. Now when they come to Idaho and you see them a second time, third time, a fourth time, that that really is a, a huge, huge benefit. Mm -hmm. And when you get those people out to farms and they see what our farm families are doing out there they're just amazed mostly uh, what what goes on with the scale that we produce and with the minor uh, number of people we do it with so anyway it's it's a great teamwork and, and you guys are great uh, partners to do that with. thank you all right well like i said at the beginning this episode will be posted to our podcast channel idaho wheat is the handle and our YouTube, also Idaho Wheat. You can also find them, links to both on our website. They'll probably be there today or tomorrow. So check back and feel free to share this episode with any of your friends or neighbors, family members that you feel um, could benefit. There was a lot of really excellent information um, today from Vince. Very quickly, Steve Mercer, I see that you are unmuted. Uh, no, I was, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> you didn't even give me the thing once. I didn't have to. <laughs> All okay. right. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you for our next episode um, in November. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you.